Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Room Podcast. We are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women. And today we're with Heather O'Neill, and we're going to be talking about her new novel, The Lonely Hearts Hotel. Welcome, Heather. Hi. We are very excited to have you on the podcast. We did the pre-podcast gushing, but I suspect there will be a lot more. (laughs) I'm very delighted to be on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. We are very thrilled to have you. I guess we'll just jump right into the questions. Um, So first things first, the Lonely Hearts Hotel was long listed for the Bailey. So congratulations on that. Um, How have things been since you were nominated for that? Yeah, I mean, life is always peculiar for a writer because you don't actually have any sense of what's going on because <laughs> you're sitting in your room most of the time. But, um, I, you know, I've actually been very lucky with that um, award. So this is, I've written three novels and they've all been nominated for it. So it has a very special place in my heart. Yeah, it, it's wonderful because it has such a following in the UK. So I ended up getting just um, a flurry of new responses and new readers from that side of the world, which is always um, very exciting, especially when I, you know, I've written this book about these two um, orphans from Montreal who are trying somehow to make themselves heard in the world. So then when the book sort of resonates in other countries and across ocean, it's a sort of wonderful feeling. And then I oddly feel proud for my main characters. I'm like, good job, Pierre Rose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been so amazing to see it sweep through. I follow UK um, booktubers, and so a lot of them are reading like the long list of the Baileys. And there's just been so much love for the Lonely Hearts Hotel and like tons of gushing and like, I read this in one day kind of discussions. <laughs> Yeah, I've been getting a lot of, yeah, I've been noticing those too. It's it's fun because it is in a way, um, it's a book that when I, one really doesn't have, I mean, I didn't have a sense of how it will be perceived in the world. And I do touch on such sort of dark subject matter because essentially for me as a story, you know, all these kind of wonderful circus things happen. But for me, it's this story of to survivors, to survivors of child abuse, though it has kind of this, uh, a lot of controversial and um, provocative subject matter. So then sometimes I, you're very, I'm always very curious how it will be perceived in the world because I never sort of hold any punches when I write because I'm writing sort of with an authenticity towards the experience of people who are from marginalized places and, you know, abusive background. So I don't want to filter their voice so that it's somehow more palatable to the world, but not true to how they would perceive it. That makes sense. Whenever um, I create characters like that and then they become beloved, then that's um, such a wonderful feeling for me. Oh, I'm sure. And your characters are just so rich. I don't want to give away any spoilers, <laughs> but that that's one thing is like your characters were just stunning and so multi-dimensional that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about it oh yeah those characters um I spent a lot of time working on the two of them they were yeah very multi-layered characters I mean I, I find character is the most important part of a novel such a novel like that because they have to really seduce the reader to go um 
down these bizarre little dark alleyways into the red light district. And um, so I had to make them uh, enchanting. Yeah, that's good. Definitely a good word for it. But I don't want to I don't want to skip ahead for we get into too many things. We to start us off, I guess we're already talking about the characters, but just to give our readers who haven't read the book, like a little uh, just snippet about what the book is about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and where the original idea came from? Um, okay. Well, the very original idea was um, when I was very little, I was raised by my dad, by a single father, and he had come of age in the Depression in Montreal. And when he was a child, he had kind of worked for all these criminals, like delivering packages and climbing into windows for them. So he was part of this sort of nefarious underworld that was happening in Montreal at the time. So he used to tell me bedtime stories about it. And they were all about these very colorful criminals and bank robbers. And so for me, they kind of became like my lullabies and I just romanticized it so much. So I was interested in writing a novel that took place in that time and had that kind of scene through the lens of a child. And then, so that was sort of the context for it. Then I had this idea, so I was working with the characters and I kind of also had this idea suddenly of making it kind of a commedia dell'arte where the characters were actually clowns who were performing it. So actually one of my editors describes it as the Godfather as if it was directed by Charlie Chaplin. I was like, oh yeah, a little bit apropos. So um, the whole thing is kind of like done on the theatrical set and it reflects on how Karen and Rose are kind of given these roles in life to perform that don't really have anything to do with their personality. Well, actually, mm. maybe so for the listeners to give a bit of plot summary. So this is not all abstract, but um, it starts off the um, story with two foundlings, um, a little boy named Piero and a girl named Rose, and they're both raised in the same orphanage. And it's this incredibly um, brutal, abusive orphanage in Montreal at the turn of the century. But while they're at the orphanage, it's kind of discovered that the two of them both have remarkable skills. Like Piero is a piano prodigy, and he can just sit at the um, piano and kind of make, without being able to read music, just play these melancholic tunes that remind people of childhoods that they've never quite had. And Rose is this, um, is able to do pantomimes and whimsical performances like she dances with an imaginary bear so the two of them are actually sent throughout Montreal to perform in the living rooms of wealthy patrons who will give money to the orphanage and while they are doing this the two of them conceive of a circus that they call um, in their sort of childlike uh, silliness the snowflake ice cool extravaganza and it's going to be the greatest circus that the world has ever seen just filled with um, all sorts of sad clowns and dancing girls. But then the two of them get separated and sent off into the world, and they kind of both end up in the underworld working pornography and as thieves. And you see basically the entire burgeoning of the red light district is sort of the historical moment that's happening in the novel. So then part of it becomes they start to seek one another out and try and find each other so that they can put on this circus again. 
And it is a beautiful, like, I love all the things they have to go through. I mean, I don't love what happens to them, but, like, I love how, like, they find, like, the different ways in which they find each other and just the path that they take. It's just so... I, I was on the edge of my seat wondering, like, what, what was going to happen to them next. And you touched on this a little bit. And so, you know, we know it's set in the Great Depression. And we, you've kind of talked a little bit about how, you know, the stories that your dad told you were kind of like fairy tales to you. I guess, was that kind of something you you started out wanting to do at the beginning? And then, like, how did you keep that balance throughout the story, like the realism and the fairy tale elements of it? I mean, part of it is just intuitive. It's a bit intuitively the way that I think in right generally with that kind of juxtaposition between um, very, very light and very, very dark. But there were other things too. An example might be because it's a historical novel, you're always relying on archival footage. So I was looking at really choppy silent films and early film like even some early pornographic films from the time and they have that sort of jumpy uh, melodramatic way of acting so I kind of put that into a lot of the physical movements of the characters and then I was also one of the things I tried to make them almost like sad clowns because I was interested in performances of clowns where that that um element of clowning where they have to perform very mundane tasks, but the sad clown is always sort of aware of the gravitas of the suffering in the world. So when the sad clown takes a bath, he's doing it while knowing that they're somehow conscious in his movement, that there's war and children who are unhappy. That was one of the ways. And then I was incorporating too a lot of children's literature into it. So there was like kind of a cross between picture books and then Jean Genet. So there is, um, I guess I just use a lot of that kind of juxtaposition, which I'm always interested in writing to give um, a very sort of newness and rawness to the text. Yeah, I well, the fairy tale element was one of the things I love the most because it just seems so magical. And yet at the same time, there was a lot of horrible things that happened. Uh, and yeah, I. But mm-hmm. it, it, you managed to keep that within the thing. And now that you've mentioned the children's literature, like when Rose is working as like a governess, I definitely see that in the way she interacts with the children who are a bit wild. Uh, it reminds yeah. me a little bit of Roald Dahl, maybe like a little. You know, the children are off just doing random things, whatever they want to, while their parents ignore them, kind of deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there were sort of these tropes from children's literature, where like. In a lot of Grimm's fairy tales, you have the very kind of um, plucky young girl who goes out on these adventures and is somehow willing to bend the rules. I was actually reading um, a lot of Marina uh, Warner while I was writing the book, who's an academic about fairy tales. And she was saying when originally when the um, those stories were collected, they were kind of equally about boys and girls, but the ones about girls survived more through the ages because they were something that that female readers had really identified with and needed mm. those characters. It seemed very important to them. So I was interested in using, yeah, those kind of characters and the characters from, like, you know, Eloise at the Plaza, but then putting them in, in um, very 
like darker circumstances. That's true. Man, now I feel like I need to reread it because now that you're saying this, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, the way you describe the orphanage definitely kind of reminds me of like Madeline or, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. That's really cool. (laughs) But it's funny because in a lot of times it's like when you write a book, so much is um, this intuitive um, magic voice that you just, you're spinning all these plates and then you're, you finished it, and then afterwards, people ask you to explain it, so you're dissecting it and and <laughs> making sense of it in a way that you didn't even really know. You're like, oh, yes, that's so clever, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That is, that is funny. So one of the things that I really loved about um, – the book was the setting of Montreal. I have never been to Montreal, but I now feel like if I go there, there will be like magic on every corner. Mm -hmm. Like you describe it in such a beautiful, magical way. And you've done that in several interviews as well, which I have loved just sitting down and and pouring through. Um, And what makes it so magical for you? And did you consider setting it anywhere else? Though now that you've talked about it a little bit, I'm not sure anywhere else would fit for it because it's I don't know it just seems like a magical fairyland now um I think well I think because all my books have been set there I feel like I've sort of gradually turned it into a fictional world or almost like there's the real Montreal and then there's the strange Montreal that I've created wherein my characters now exist but um I think well I mean there's an obvious reason that I've just spent my entire life here so it's I feel like I have the authority to kind of write about it and then to mix up its history. And then nobody can tell me what's what. Because if I did that with another city, people would be like, are you mad? We cannot do that to Detroit. But I'm like, but this <laughs> Montreal is mine. I do. I say what I please about it. And also, I, I guess I just have this deep love for the city. Like I always say, like this neighborhood that I live in called the Plateau. And I was like, oh. The plateau is the love of my life. There's never <laughs> been any man for me. <laughs> so, and there's this like, and because I spent my childhood here, and also my dad grew up here, so when every neighborhood kind of has these different layers of history for me to, so it's almost like I have this have done this incredible like close reading of all the metaphors and imagery of the city. So it's very kind of rich for me that makes any sense definitely it does because the city is almost a character of itself yeah it, it has its own i don't know it has its own story almost like it's its own character and this i'm gonna sneak in another question is like so you said that you did a lot of research when you're writing this book like and obviously they're based off the stories your dad told you like how, how much of this the book is like based off of historical things that you read oh well yeah, I did a lot of actual research to um, because anything that happens in the book, it has a kind of grounding in, in an actual event. Like right from the beginning when the first scene is um, a teenage mother going to the Hôpital de which is where all the um, young unwed mothers were sent in the province of Quebec to Montreal to kind of go live in almost a sort of prison where they were their names and identities were taken away and they would spend the nine months there kind of seclu- um, 
in hiding so that and then they would go out and never mention that they had had a child again. So I did a lot of research into that building and then the orphanages in Montreal. And then even like the entertainment, because Montreal at the time, because there was no prohibition in Montreal, and it became like this huge kind of mecca for entertainment and also crime. When Pierre and Rose kind of head to New York, it also mirrored the merging of the Montreal and New York crime families, which ended up, there was all of a sort of um, heroin coming through Montreal into the United States through New York that way. So, so their circus trick is actually weaves in that historical thing, which is something that I recorded, that I had researched. Yeah, there was just like tons, tons of research because it just opens up so much for the plot possibilities. Um, and sometimes, as I found with anybody, if you research a book, sometimes you find things that you can't even make up. Like, for instance, when I, I really wanted the character to be named Caro, but then I was concerned. I said, well, at the turn of the century in Montreal, would people really be naming their child, like in an orphanage, would a child actually be named Pierre? It seems a little um, bit too modern. So I went to the archives of an orphanage at the turn of the century to see what they had named the boys there to see if any maybe by chance was named Pierre. And it turned out that every single boy they had named Joseph. I was like, oh, that's just like too ridiculous to be true. And then, <laughs> of course, <laughs> and then he'll need his nickname, of course, and then it will be Piero. So problem solved. But um, I mean, yeah, I never would have been able to make up that there's an orphanage with 200 boys named <laughs> Joseph. Because obviously it's the most holy name, and why would you give them anything else? That's amazing. Because when I read that, I did have the thought of, well, that's just the most ridiculous thing ever. And then, like, but it was like, but it did have an element of like, but it's plausible. Yeah. Like, is that it? Like, it gives you pause, but it's like, is this true or is this not true? So I'm delighted to know that like that actually happened. Yeah, because I don't want everything to be completely quirky and crazy. It needs to be somehow grounded in, in a truth, a historical right. truth. And from there, I can um, spin whatever I want from it, but I want it to sort of somehow you can ground it in history. That's really cool. So while I was reading it, I couldn't help but think of Carson McCullers' book, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Obviously, I mean, your book also deals with loneliness, and I don't really feel like Think, I think this is in the only the second book I've ever read, and maybe I just haven't read as widely as I should have, which is probably true, um, <laughs> that actually like deals with loneliness in such a way that it forefronts loneliness. Like I feel like loneliness is a theme that kind of underpins a lot of stories. Um, but what kind of made you decide like to write about loneliness and like the things people do because of their loneliness or to escape their loneliness? It's almost hard to talk about loneliness and sadness or melancholia or because they're topics we shy away from and you mm -hmm. immediately are like, well, what's the cause and how is it remedied? And you're always talking about the causes or, and nobody wants to kind of dwell on them. I, don't know, I mean, loneliness is so, it's such a difficult emotion. I, I find it sort of the hardest state for people to be in sometimes. I mean, it just, eats your soul and kills you, <laughs> to put it mildly. But it's something we sort of can't, we can't um, 
it's very hard to bear. I mean, it's different from solitude where solitude is something, it's a choice, but loneliness is sort of a state of being, which is unnatural and you can't find your way out of. And I think it just represents, sometimes you can be lonely with all these people around because you're alienated from your personhood or who you're supposed to be. And I think for Rose and Piero, they were both, that they were able to find each other as children is the most remarkable thing because they were able to um, authenticate each other's specialness and accept it and reflect it back and say that it was okay. Mm. So they were not alone in the world in their specialness. I don't know if I'm getting it. I mean, loneliness is such a hard thing to Like loneliness doesn't want to be described. You know, there's always sort of in the outskirts. It also with loneliness, it, it's so manipulative because when you're mm-hmm. feeling lonely, it changes all it, 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 it clouds your thoughts and makes them so crazy and mad. I don't know. I'm getting too abstract. <laughs> I'm getting sad talking about loneliness. <laughs> but the two of them, it's like they need to find each other. And, and I think they also, when they search for each other, they're searching for who they were as children. And they were searching. I mean, they both become so corrupt in the world that they are searching for their innocent self and their true self. And I feel that the two of them have an idea of who the other is authentically. And I think when we're lonely and we look for someone, we look for someone who knows who we're actually trying to be or who we actually are, as opposed to all the roles that we're sort of playing, but we're not comfortable with. That's a beautiful way to put it. It is. I loved them as characters together. And I was on the edge of my seat wondering if they would get back together. Cause I thought it was very feasible that the entire book could happen, you know, like as I was reading as a reader uh, and you don't, really skimp on the details of what they go to in order to escape their loneliness. And though we realize that, you know, they're making horrible decisions and we don't necessarily agree with their actions, I personally never, I guess, thought less of them. Like, I thought it was feasible that they would go to these links. But did you struggle to find a balance uh, to keep the reader emotionally invested in your characters while they make these decisions? Um, I thought you did it very well, but I'm kind of curious as your process to it. Well, one of the ways that enabled me to do it was the difference between Rose and Piero because they both have such different moral takes on their actions. I think um, that Rose is essentially much more, she's a bit amoral in that she kind of looks at the world and sees it as full of these constructs that are keeping her down. So she has no, um, she feels there's no reason for her to subscribe to any sort of morality, which she sees just as um, a societal constraint. So she's willing to do anything to get ahead. So in a, in a sense, she's actually the most, um, probably most violent characters in the book because she's capable of anything. But then because she's always paired with, um, Piero, who is um, an incredibly moral character, and he has a constant weight on him of almost this childlike sense of what's right and wrong, and he kind of bears the moral burden of 
everything that they do. So it's always interesting me with readers to see who they identify with, Rose or Piero, because there's some who are just like, I adore Rose. She goes, she gets what she wants. She just understands the world. And there are people like, I like Piero. Rose is cruel. (laughs) (laughs) Piero is wonderful. And like, she should just be listening to him. So it's kind of, um, so in, in a way, they, they kind of, they complement each other because they do offer a constant narration in consideration of the acts that they're doing and they're able to discuss them. So, and then part of it too is just, there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot that goes into the style of the writing to be able to bewitch the reader into following their um, kind of troubled decisions. Because if I had, if I had written it in a way that wasn't, um, always kind of seeking the light and the wonder in the world, then Bull would not follow them down. So in a way, I'm tricking them, I think, somehow. Or it's just a constant play. (laughs) I forget the question. (laughs) I'm so far from it. What am I talking about? Oh, I like I like them both, and we're not going to talk about like the ending ending. But you'll know what I'm talking about when I say I reread that ending over and over and felt glee and horror all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Oh yeah, um, I appreciate likewise. that. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty. I was kind of pleased with that ending too, because <laughs> it's a sort of um, it's a surprise for the reader. Oh, de- definitely. I was shocked in a good way. Yeah. Since so matter of factly, it's like deadpan. <laughs> Perfect. So thank you. My, I felt so satisfied. So, <laughs> so dear readers, you will feel satisfied at the end. So you need to go out and get the book right now. So obviously one of the things that we're really passionate about here is female writers. And so we always love to ask the people we have on the podcast, like who are the women or the stories or the female characters who kind of inspired you in your writing career? It depends for, I mean, if you ask me the question today and if you ask me two weeks from now, I would give you completely different answers. However, we understand <laughs> now. <laughs> Top up some names. Um, well, just before we're talking about fairy tales, Angela Carter writes oh, so yes. amazingly about fairy tales yes. and also um, to uh, two female writers who are writing just so spectacularly about fairy tales now are um, Kelly Link and Helen Oyemeni. Yes. Just um, yes. the way they break apart stories and just find hidden corners to like in the intellectual level at which they write. I find this spectacular. Also this book, um, Gina Reese was uh, an influence because I had read um, all her early novels that she wrote. Um, I mean, she because she used to be a chorus girl, but she just seems to have been like a horrible drunken chorus girl. And she wrote these sort of um, existential short novels like Good Morning, Midnight about being um, depressed in the 30s. And they're just these wonderful um, meditations on being in the, in the female body and what it means to be aware of one's own objectification. I had read her stuff and really loved it. And I always wanted to do something with chorus girls so she was an influence and um 
I always had really, I like Simone de Beauvoir. Yes. I was, um, I was saying the other day that like Rose to me is like a cross between like a gangster's mall and Simone de Beauvoir. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. And, um, also, also like Marguerite Duras was, um, a big influence about writing about, um, the sort of alienated female and Charlotte Bronte, of course. Of course. I don't know. So <laughs> in modern, I don't know. There's so many, like, I really like Ali Smith and Sarah Waters and I don't know. I could just go on. We, we take favorites of the week. That's okay. We do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my favorites for the week. That works. <laughs> I'm a fickle reader. <laughs> we'll stay tuned on your Twitter for next week. See what happens. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you can say anything yet, but I wanted, just wanted to ask, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Um, I'm working on, I've kind of got like two novels on the go. My new, um, my new process is to work on two novels at once because I always end up hating a book and I would always try and work my way through the hatred, but now I just abandon it then return to the other and it's like going back to an ex-boyfriend and you're like oh I forgot all these wonderful things about you and then I you know that book for a few months and I'm like oh wait I remember why I hated you let me go see if my other my other book will take me back I go back and forth so um one is let me choose one the one I was writing today it's kind of um I don't know what it is it's like a triptych it's in three parts one is in the past but this one actually begins in Europe because I want it to start in the 1600s so I actually couldn't have it in Canada unless I just wanted some lonely fur trader it begins there and then there's the middle part is in the 1980s and then the third part is in the future which tells you absolutely nothing but it's sort of about the female body and disease and technology Yes, please. <laughs> I look forward to it. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I'm sure we could talk about the Lonely Hearts Hotel all night long. Um, we'd, of course, like to thank Heather O'Neill for taking the time to talk to us about her book, The Lonely Hearts Hotel, which is out right now and published by Riverhead. And you definitely, definitely, definitely go pick it pick it up. We loved it so much. Um, and then you can find her on Twitter at Lethal Heroin, and we'll post links to the books that she talked about and her website and um, her backlist on our show notes, so that way you can look into those and see the things that we've talked about. And then, of course, you can always find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and other places at Autumn Privet and um, Kendra at Katie Winchester. And don't forget um, to leave us a review if you like what you're hearing, and it really helps us out. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you.